and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm joining you this week from Berlin to talk yet again about France and the future of Europe. To make sense of the appointment of Macron's government, his trip to Berlin and what that tells us about the future of France, of Franco-German relations and of European foreign policy. I have two all-star contributors to the podcast. Back again for yet another podcast on France is Manuel Lafont-Louis, the head of ECFR's office in Paris and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And also joining me here in Berlin is and Meller, who is one of the two co-heads of ECFR's office in Berlin and also a senior policy fellow and a, a long-term studier of the Franco-German relationship. So Manuel, we now know who's going to be running French foreign policy and uh, the French government at least until the legislative elections. Why don't you tell us what it says about the direction that Macron is going to take the country in? So Macron has first appointed Prime Minister Edouard Philippe. He is a, a, a member of Les Républicains, so the, the mainstream right-leaning party. He is, uh, was close to Alain Juppé. That says something about uh, Macron's uh, determination to reach out to both sides of the aisles, and that was important for him to have a right-leaning Prime Minister, to have also people from Les Républicains in his government. And today he has announced his uh, cabinet and we have a few nominations that uh, are interesting, uh, in particular for people looking at European affairs and at foreign policy. Jean-Yves Le Drian, who was so far uh, François Hollande's defence minister, is now a minister for Europe and foreign affairs. Um, on the Minister of Defence, um, Edouard Philippe and Emmanuel Macron have appointed Sylvie Goulard, who is a, a liberal uh, from, from the liberal group in the European Parliament and has been a supporter of Macron for quite a few months now. Uh, there will be also Marielle de Sarnez as Minister for European Affairs. And interestingly enough for our conversation on the relation with uh, Germany, um, the economic portfolio has been attributed to Bruno Le Maire, who also is uh, a member of Les Républicains and happens to be, like Sylvie Goulard, someone who not only speaks German uh, and knows Germany, but actually is a strong supporter of finding agreement with Germany as a basis for uh, French policy and for French-European policy. So the first role of this new government is a question of virtue signalling in order to help build a presidential majority in the legislative elections. And you mentioned the, the reason why there are a lot of people from Les Républicains there, because he doesn't have any Républicain people on his list yet, and he wants to create a, a bridge for people from the right to, to join his movement rather than to be in opposition. More people from the left had joined uh, Emmanuel Macron before he was elected than people from the right. And he definitely, if he wants to gather a majority in Parliament, he definitely needs to reach out on both sides. He also needs that to make sense of his own political positioning. He says, I'm from the left and from the right and from the centre and, and I want to take 
uh, at the same time everything <laughs> uh, every, everything that is good from all these uh, all these uh, uh, areas of the political spectrum so yes this is uh, for domestic purposes this is definitely something important although in government we've mentioned uh, quite a few people from les républicains from the, the traditional centrist christian democrat liberal part of the political spectrum but there are also people from civil society and on other portfolio you have people from the left not just le drian who is there and to what extent are these people actually going to be running france i mean is this just a, a question of positioning for the elections or is it likely that they will stay on after the elections if if macron is able to secure a majority in parliament they will likely uh, stay usually you don't have a big overhaul of governments uh, between the presidential election and after the legislative election unless there is a kind of ups, political upset in the outcome of the of the legislative election and do the polls now show that he's likely to get um, a presidential majority 290 seats there haven't been that many polls and the polls have been very generic whereas it's going to be a very complex election 577 different election uh, different districts and in the districts you can have not just two uh, candidates in the second round but actually you could have three or four and so the vote transfer problem is quite uh, uh, difficult to uh, to analyze for the pollsters. Right, I'm shooting you a but, lot of questions. Sorry. But yes, it looks like he has a good chance to be not just the biggest parliamentary group, but at least a, a minority government is uh, within reach and maybe majority is doable. And before I turn to Almu to, to hear how she thinks about the, the government, also how she thinks it's, it's likely to be seen in Berlin, from a policy and foreign policy perspective, what do you, what do you think the kind of first uh, clues are from the people that he's chosen? Well, it's very interesting that he's uh, uh, chosen Le Drian uh, in his government. That was very expected uh, as a sign of continuity and also as a sign of credibility on security and defense. But Le Drian is not at the defense ministry anymore. People thought that maybe he would go on the interior to bring this kind of credibility in the security, on security issues, on the fight against terrorism. And actually, Le Drian is at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, so we'll see uh, uh, what that means. But that probably means some continuity on, for instance, Africa, on uh, the strategy to fight Daesh and, and on the, some of the Middle East uh, crisis. And um, so on the interior question, which is the other bit of the fight against terror, because this has to be a big thing that they're worried about. There's Gérard Collomb. Yeah. What do we know about him? He uh, comes from the left. He was on the on the in the Socialist Party for quite some time, and uh, he is a mayor of Lyon, uh, a big city uh, in France. But it doesn't have uh, executive uh, uh, experience so far. Colomb was uh, willing to be in a cabinet and looking at these kind of issues, uh, interior uh, issues, for quite some time. But we don't really doesn't have the kind of background that can tell us some very specific. Uh, uh, orientations, directions that the government will take with with him on those issues. Okay, so why don't we start moving on to the, the European question, Almut? Um, you uh, obviously uh, looking at this very very closely. I know you've had quite a lot to do with because some of the ministers who are going to be dealing with Europe have got quite a lot of experience of Germany as well. Well, it's it's quite interesting to see um, uh, the people that we've uh, heard about today. Uh, Manuel talked about Sylvie Goulard, 
for instance, she is somebody known in, in, in this country uh, and, and in the environment around the European community, somebody knowing Germany very, very well. Um, traveled also with uh, Emmanuel Macron when he was out on the campaign trail um, to Germany and is somebody who really has a deep uh, knowledge and understanding how this country ticks. Um, Emmanuel mentioned uh, uh, Bruno Le Maire's uh, uh, language abilities. I don't want to overemphasize uh, that necessarily as something that uh, uh, qualifies uh, only to, to sort of engage with the Franco-German angle, but it is, it is a very useful thing I found also already in the run-up to the uh, um, elections that uh, Macron was sending out messages where you could really be um, detecting that, that he knows uh, whom he's talking to when he's communicating with German audiences, be it in the big speech that he gave at Humboldt University, um, sending out uh, messages to a wider German public. Um, so really interesting to see. Of course, Le Drian, um, as, as was mentioned, is not a newcomer. He has been part of um, uh, the dynamics between Ursula von der Leyen and the German defense minister in the aftermath of Brexit coming out in September last year with a Franco-German uh, initiative in the EU framework to strengthen European security. He will be moving now uh, to a different portfolio, but um, he will be known in that, uh, in that way. Uh, Macron himself, uh, of course, uh, that is what Sigmar Gabriel, the current German foreign minister, uh, pointed out um, right uh, at the day of uh, the re election result in, in France, Macron and Gabriel have a joint past uh, thinking about Europe in 2015 when both were minister um, of uh, economics and shared a vision also published more widely in, uh, in Europe about a reform for the Eurozone. So there is a great deal of um, um, receptiveness towards these kind of figures. And um, it was quite fascinating to see also when um, Macron came to, to Berlin, which of course is a ritual somewhat uh, between France and Germany, uh, this was less ritualistic. This had fresh uh, uh, air with it, uh, not only because it was on one of the first days of spring here in, in Germany, but also because almost you felt the atmosphere, I mean, watching it sort of on the, on the television, that Angela Merkel was quite happy to see somebody like-minded. Uh, she has been dealing with, and I think that one should not forget that, with a whole number of rather difficult partners and, and to have somebody who is in a way predictable and also um, somebody whom she finds engaging with uh, uh, easier, I think, it was, it was a good start. And how much does this language thing matter? Because, like, you know, it's an old French trick, isn't it? Because Bruno Le Maire was made Europe Minister and the big joke was Ich spreche Deutsch. And he, he gave a speech in German. It's a big thing because it's rare. <laughs> and then the other way around is less rare. You you find uh, quite a lot of German politicians who at least manage to say a few words in French. Uh, I, I think Strauss-Kahn was the first one who impressed people by saying, but actually I can speak German. And people were yeah. like, wow. But Jean-Marc Hérault, who was made prime minister first <coughs> by, by yeah. François Hollande, partly because he was a German teacher and spoke German and, and then became foreign minister, Nevertheless, in spite of his wonderful linguistic abilities, didn't seem to manage on his own to, to bring off a, a great rapprochement between, or, or am I wrong? Well, I mean, like I said, let's not overemphasize language, but there is something in there. I mean, I bring myself as, as an example. Um, um, the way you, you learn French when you are exposed to the sort of old Franco-German uh, uh, alliance uh, thinking of the of the Bonn Republic, which was uh, back in the day sort of my, my, my background, 
it really gives you also an exposure to the thinking. And the thinking between French and Germans is very different yeah. on so many things. I was just thinking this morning when we were sitting and uh, having a discussion with uh, Manuel about uh, where Macron's foreign policy is probably going, um, you had a few principles uh, that you talked about, Manuel, and uh, one was independence, uh, an independent France uh, that also is placed in a strong European Union. So being independent because there is a European environment that uh, leverages uh, that and allows that in, uh, independence. The Germans would somewhat sign up to that, but the starting point would be a different one. We would start with interdependence and then say interdependence being part of the wider unit and that gives us more sovereignty, more independence. So the concepts are not irreconcilable, but yeah. they come from different starting points. And I think the mental maps are, are really quite significantly different. So and why don't you, you, you tell us a bit about the mental maps of, of the German Chancellor and the, uh, the President, because they met for the first time in their respective roles earlier this week. There was high hopes placed on this meeting. Macron, in fact, ended up doing it even before going to see the French troops, which is what he promised to do during the campaign. So Merkel went, became an even more pressing uh, part of his calendar. But does he speak French? Does he speak German? Was, was Macron speaking to her in German? I, I think he, sp he speaks a bit of German. So you think they were speaking in English? Uh, I, I don't know about in that. In spite of Brexit. The yeah, that's the destiny of all the poor bitches that we all use and abuse their language. <laughs> One of the things uh, that more, more than the fact that they both uh, speak German, uh, that uh, Sylvie Goulard and Bruno Le Maire uh, have in common is something that uh, Emmanuel Macron is uh, uh, believing in. Uh, when Bruno Le Maire was uh, supporting François Fillon during the early phase of the, of the presidential campaign, um, he was out several times. He came with François Fillon here in Berlin and he insisted on the fact that the right way to uh, do what needed to be done on the European front was to find an agreement at the early stage with Germany and not to, to enter into a kind of antagonized uh, relationship. Frequently, you have a French president coming there and saying, I'm going to change the balance of power. I'm going to unite with the Southern Mediterranean countries. I'm going to uh, open up the game by reaching out to the British. Uh, that was uh, the case uh, with Jospin and with Chirac and actually Gerhard Schroeder also on the German side uh, tried to play that game, etc. And Bruno Le Maire kept on saying, we need to start on a, I want to find an agreement with you and there's a basis for that agreement that I see. So let's, let's try to make the best of, of our relationship. And that is something Sylvie Goulard has been saying for uh, even longer, and that's exactly what Macron was saying during on the campaign trail. People were saying it's going to be hard when you be uh, in in front of Angela Merkel, and he and basically answered, "I don't want to be in front of Angela Merkel. I want to be uh, next to her side. We want to work together, and that's what we need to." It, it's important to understand that it's not that this is the uh, end. Uh, uh, it's it's a mean to an end. But it's a very different way to think uh, on the mean to an end. And that is not the traditional uh, uh, French way of thinking, of approaching that uh, Franco-German relationship and, and European policy, whether on economy or, or on, on the other issues, especially foreign policy, defense and security. And is it working out? Because it looked like the Germans were, did see him coming. There was a lot of suspicion in the tabloids that, you know, Macron's going to save Europe and we get to pay for it. Just there. <laughs> 
the headline in what was that in the Spiegel? Yeah, you know that was a very interesting one. Both the uh, weekly magazine the Spiegel, as, as you say, and uh, Bild Zeitung, even more widely read uh, uh, daily tabloid newspaper, right in the aftermath of of the vote of the election of. Uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron, you had this playing with, you know, this German fear of, well, essentially it's the, you know, the French who want to reform Europe and we need to pay for it. Um, and that uh, started to unfold a dynamic that I think the German government, including Merkel herself, felt they needed to somewhat counter because the interesting piece here is the French are driving a debate that you would expect Germany to be having at the moment. I mean, we have to look. Um, regardless of whether it is Macron uh, uh, or not, at how to make the Eurozone sustainable. So Germany is in the middle already of a big election year, where you should expect in a country that is really so majorly important with regard to the future of the Euro, that the German wider public is well aware of the different concepts, you know, the different options, and it's battling it out because the parties are really putting it at the forefront, but they're not. Almost you have to look for these positions with a magnifying glass as an expert um, because uh, these different uh, visions about the euro, about Europe at large, are not so very uh, clear yet. And now suddenly this has been driven by a French uh, president who is coming in and people drag out some of the uh, concepts or the um, speeches that he had been given and uh, suddenly there is the big specter that is Eurobonds, which he put it right when he came here, is never what he really uh, said and wanted to do. But interestingly, the German government, Merkel herself, uh, her finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble, and others felt uh, compelled then to follow uh, up and to kind of, in my interpretation, uh, try to get on top again of what might have been a sort of public debate uh, they ha don't have an interest in. And they made a very distinct effort to show openness, to show that they are essentially familiar also with Macron's vision. Um, underlining that you know these views are 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 to so be reconciled, etc., etc. So to have a fiscal capacity for the EU, which um, a finance minister. There would be a eurozone, so it's not for the EU; it's for the eurozone. You yeah. would have a eurozone budget, uh, which is part of a investment uh, uh, growth policy, and also uh, emergency assistance in case of crisis. That budget would be. Uh, um, uh, under the authority of a Eurozone finance minister and you would have a, a Eurozone parliament uh, to which the Eurozone finance minister would be accountable to. Um, that's, that's one of the important uh, um, proposals that Macron has put forward uh, during the campaign. This also includes uh, a kind of uh, anti-dumping policy because you would access the money on that fund only if you abide by a few criteria and norms and rules in terms of uh, behaving, uh, uh, not not resorting to uh, to dumping uh, um, within the uh, the single market within the the eurozone. Um, so this is one of the ideas that he has put forward. He this these are ideas that he adds in a somewhat different uh, uh, way. Already mentioned when he was. Uh, Minister of the Economy, and he had written an op-ed with Sigmar Gabriel at the time, uh, with those ideas. So, so an, that's this vision for the for an, for an economic grand bargain that France does its reforms in the exchange. It gets that, and then there are other bits of the of the the European agenda which he laid out during the campaign, like for example, European border force with five thousand troops, European defence fund, 
to spend money on, on defence? What, what were the other <coughs> for European There's people? also more solidarity in terms of uh, uh, welcoming refugees. Uh, that's something that has been critical of the, the French behaviour, which he found too restrictive in terms of sharing the burden with Germany and with the other most concerned countries like Sweden or Austria. Um, on on defence, it's not just uh, the, the fund, although the fund is uh, important, it's also the operational capabilities, the uh, operational headquarters, for instance. Um, he, he has this kind of basically uh, a generic idea that most of the international challenges will be better tackled if we manage to do something at the European level. Digital is a big issue for Macron for a variety of reasons. Digital single market. He insists on doing more stuff at the uh, at the EU level. So there's there's a, that's also and then he kind wants of to wrap it all in a constitutional bow and have a bottom up convention which will create a new European constitution. Um, that that is not the case. But he, he has made yeah he has made clear that unlike most uh, French leaders, he is not fearing a debate on, on a revision of the treaties. And that was one of the interesting things that came up in Berlin, wasn't it? I mean, I, you know, I thought it was not interesting. It was rather strange to do that. Um, they both failed somewhat to address this question. It made the headlines here in Germany. And I wondered, you know, what does it say to the German public? We are open to treaty change as well. It's well, something so abstract. Scheibler just said we would close the treaty change. And then um, the Chancellor said that we were open. It was, um, uh, you get uh, not always the same messages uh, here. In a way, it shows me how the French again are driving uh, uh, the debate with the sort of, you know, we, we get a roadmap. We, we want to be ambitious, etc., etc. Is that a real? It's one of the questions which I, I, mean, mm-hmm. I agree. It's maybe not the most pressing and the most uh, immediate question out of that big agenda that you laid out. But it is obviously important, certainly in legalistic German minds, if yeah. you're going to do deliver some of these fiscal changes. For Schäuble, I mean, Schäuble has made it clear on a number of occasions over the past uh, years uh, already that. Um, yes, in the medium term, there needs to be treaty change. Things need to be sorted out again uh, yeah. in a more structured way, but the transition time will probably look more messy. And now there is a going back to the um, message about, yes, we will give this a holistic framework, etc. And the message is, we are ambitious. And I think this is an important message um, that France and Germany need to have because if you look at the past years of Franco-German relations, there has been, I mean, it has been really, if it wasn't uh, confrontational at times, um, in some foreign policy areas they were, were, but sort of there has been a ritualized practice that was unbelievably boring and dusty and, you know, you you could always come up with ministerial uh, meetings and lists of things that the Germans and the French should do together, not particularly interesting. They go back to the level of big ideas about l'Europe puissance, how we can be strong together, open together, shape the world, etc. And the treaty uh, thing is, is, is part of that in a way. You know, well, we why, are not ambitious. Well, why do they do that? Is this just the normal German thing of saying we're in favour of a European army, we're in favour of um, you know political union and all sorts of other stuff that every single German knows isn't going to happen in their lifetimes? Uh, and it's part of virtue signalling? Or, or do they really want to create a new treaty? Do they think it's remotely possible in uh, the current EU where people seem to be very keen to vote no to almost anything if, if there's a referendum, even to association agreements with Ukraine, let alone uh, 
treaty change that could socialise debt or create finance ministers and things like that? I, I believe the, the key point is not so much uh, treaty change as such, but rather the idea that we want to be uh, ambitious, the, the government, uh, the French government in any way, wants to be ambitious and is not going to take, but that's not possible under the current treaty for an answer. And so if, if we want to do something and that something takes treaty change, then we'll do treaty change. That, that's so more so political signaling in so terms of ambition is not so going to threat. be constrained. Treaty change is a threat rather than a promise. It's kind of funny how it was perceived, of course, in the British uh, debate. My sense was, yeah, see, now he's giving it to, um, uh, she's giving it to Macron. Macron is uh, putting it on the table again while the, uh, Cameron was sort of fenced off with, with this. I don't think that's what it is. I think it, it shows that um, Merkel and, and Macron together, they want to uh, break out of this sheepy sort of uh, attitude that has crept in also into European debates um, exactly. where, you know, you feel... Uh, suddenly um, that you cannot talk about treaty change and no, an average citizen doesn't understand that the toxic nature of that yeah. and this is a, a, a whole debate that is so defensive and so not visionary and I think they want to go back in a, into a completely different gear and um, interestingly where speaking about mind, um, mental maps um, Merkel's first response to uh, Macron was addressing his um, vision for an open France France open to shaping globalization, which is a message that Merkel has been sending also quite intensely um, because she knows that this is crucial for Germany. This is what we need for our economic model to work, etc. She's been fighting to keep the openness against the German mindset that often is quite sort of inward looking and happy in a, in a German uh, setting. And she's looking for allies. I guess it's not going to be an easy one for, for Macron <laughs> to fight this, but it's interesting uh, to fight this at home. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that this was the first thing she was responding to yeah. when Macron uh, was elected. And what does Macron actually need to bring back in order to be seen to succeed? Because it's a sort of risky thing, putting so much of his political fate in building this cooperative relationship with Germany. If Not he only wants to, to be seen as a success, what does he actually need to, to, to deliver? Actually, he has been quite cautious also because he knows that there is little that he will be able to get uh, in, in the near term. Um, his, all his plan is... To do this kind of thing, uh, France leadership and credibility and authority in Europe needs to be restored and for this to be restored, actually France needs to uh, uh, accomplish the kind of reforms that the other have been uh, expecting from the French side for uh, uh, quite a few years now. And so he knows that he has to do his homework first and he insists that he's not doing it because others are requesting it but because that's what France needs and that will make France more dynamic, stronger, more able to shape uh, its environment and uh, to uh, be a force to reckon with uh, uh, in Europe. And then, obviously, he hopes that he can also precisely shape Europe in the direction that he is looking to. And the whole question is, how long will it take for him to be able to do the kind of reforms that are expected? and? Will uh, its key partners and Germany to begin with, will they be waiting for the reforms to be actually implemented and having an impact? Or will they be able to uh, do stuff together at the European level in parallel, not as a precondition, yeah. but just as kind of parallel tracks? But anyway, 
this is going to take time. There's no way that Macron can get a, a very significant result, especially on the Eurozone front uh, before the, the legislative election. And even uh, after that, it will take some time. And I think he has a strategy where he will need to get some early deliverables, some kind of milestones to show that things are moving in the direction, etc., before he can actually reach to the kind of uh, reforms at the European level that he's been advocating for during the campaign. And do you think, because people here in Berlin have been pretty patronising about French economics and politics for a number of years, the phrase uh, homework often comes up a lot when people talk about France in, uh, in relation to the Eurozone. How much... Um, scepticism is there about whether Macron will be able to deliver and if he does deliver is there a kind of sense that Germany would then be on the hook to do its bit if, uh, if France does its homework first or do people think that France needs to do these things for its own sake and why, why should we pay France to do what's good for France? You know it's it's really quite fascinating or unbelievable to what extent also the German public has a view on this. Um, I happened to be on a national radio program the day after the elections with uh, citizens calling in giving their views um, and they all had very strong opinions about France needing to reform which is a reflection of what you describe what has been discussed in this country and the laziness creeping in also talking about France as if it was the sick man of Europe. Um, uh, in a way that I thought was always unhealthy um, and uh, I think we need to get away from that and accept the Frenchness, uh, the, the French and their Frenchness as, um, you know, of course uh, a country that we're playing um, um, together uh, and, and, and shaping things and really go into a completely different gear. I was actually quite shocked to see the, those responses, you know, that were going back into this lecturing, lecturing mode. I think there is room for that, the government here, Angela Merkel, they, she doesn't. She understands that. I believe she doesn't. She doesn't do that kind of thing. She wants France to be uh, at eyes eyes level. She needs it as well. Otherwise, I mean, Berlin without uh, without Paris means a Berlin without Europe, and that was the real risk. Uh, but there does seem to be a big in. fight between people in the SPD who seem to be much more open to the the Macron deal and have been for a long time now. You know. Um, mentioned uh, Zygmunt Gabriel when he was in the economics ministry, thinking about whether there are things you can do to boost investment. People have been talking about maybe having Franco-German bonds as a prelude to, to Euro bonds um, and other ways of, of showing solidarity, lots of thinking in the SPD-controlled foreign ministry about ways of of working together on foreign and defence policy. Um, and then in the finance ministry and some of the bits of the CDU, I think people are more sceptical about being willing to, 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 to move forward. Um, one senior official that I spoke to, um, who will remain anonymous, said that we're gonna find it really hard to do very much on, on the positive agenda. So the, the one thing we can work together with the French on is turning Britain into a great demonstration effect about the dangers of, of leaving the EU so that Macron has a good answer to Marine Le Pen in 2022 at the next election if she suggests a Frexit again and that that's the best thing we can do to, to help the French. If that is uh, the best thing we can uh, we can do, well, I could, I could think of uh, something that I'm sure Angela Merkel and also Macron talked about very much, which is... Um, 
uh, you know, the, the whole agenda of climate uh, change, the Germans in the G20 format are talking about, you know, keeping, keeping globalization uh, and shaping globalization on the agenda. There's a whole number of issues that you can talk about. But of course, you're right. I mean, there is a here uh, in, in Germany still um, uh, a predominantly one-sided focus on what it takes to be a successful member of the Eurozone. But that is breaking up now. Um, partly because those, well, by and large, because Berlin knows the Eurozone needs to succeed and that it needs to move as well and it needs to move attention elsewhere. And partly, as you say, I mean, the SPD is looking for a different narrative and has been looking for a different narrative for quite some time. Their problem has been that they were pretty much supporting the line of uh, the government of Angela Merkel when in opposition and then in the coalition, which makes it uh, more difficult uh, uh, to argue, um, you know, credibly for a vision that would be more aligned with Macron. Now with Martin Schulz uh, as um, uh, the front runner in the campaign is, is, is uh, uh, you know, you can make that argument more easily because he's a fresh face. Um, you know, the, the people are out uh, in, in this party also for a different narrative and he could help with that. So I think things are not as clear cut, but yeah, I'm completely uh, with you. There is in the wider media, I think, a strong emphasis of you know, the French uh, retirement age, etc., etc. But I think that can be broken up. That's just a, a ritualized sort of um, set of, of, uh, of, of patterns that people come up with um, because this has, has been around for so long. And this is being challenged now both within Germany and also, uh, you know, Paris brings a different perspective of, uh, of these questions to the table, which I think is healthy. We just got to move on. And you can shape, I think, the German wider public also uh, around that. You know, we've seen uh, other countries uh, succeeding with that. You know, the, the whole saga of the Eurozone crisis is so much about public diplomacy as well. Um, and, you know, I, I, I see, I don't see things that negatively here. First, to, to be asked to the UK, just to make an example, would on the contrary probably be uh, helping Le Pen in five years from now uh, in, in feeding into the, the hostility against Brussels, against the EU, which is uh, making examples just for the sake of it uh, um, and not uh, looking at, at what people uh, need uh, to get. So I, I suspect that would be a very bad strategy. Second, in terms of, uh, the, there is in France the, the symmetry to this uh, uh, German perception of France. I, I have uh, uh, listened to a few programs where basically people were saying, why is Macron going to Berlin? Uh, this is domination uh, of Europe uh, by the German. On the contrary, we need to fight against them. We need to get rid of them. They are punishing the, the Greeks and what they're imposing to the Greeks, they want to impose on all others, etc. So, there definitely is some need to uh, show that uh, this is not just about balance of powers, this is also about common uh, projects. Your point about uh, is it uh, uh, France should do the reform for the sake of it, so why should Germany uh, then help France? Macron's own argument is that yes, of course, France should do the reform for the sake of it, and the Eurozone should do the reform for the sake of it, for, its, for the Eurozone interest, for its sustainability. Uh, that there is a, a case to be made for the Eurozone to be reformed because as it is, it is still fragile and it is still weak and, and the growth and the unemployment problems and the lack of investment, whether public or private, in the Eurozone are problems for the Eurozone and for Europe in, in general. 
And uh, one last point, on, on the first day uh, when Macron took office, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker made a public statement about the fact that the level of public expenditure, public spending in France was way too high and France needed to uh, get over that kind of dependency. I think that was very ill-advised uh, as, as a comment. F France has to work on its deficits and uh, Macron has been saying that he wants to abide by the 3% the deficit rule. But then if you abide by the rules, the level of public expenditure and how you want to organize your social protection, your public education, etc., this is uh, for uh, member states to decide and this is not the commission rule, this is not uh, Germany's uh, uh, interest. And I don't think that Macron is going to reform France in uh, uh, cutting all the, the expenditure for the sake of cutting the expenditure or for the sake of uh, pleasing to uh, to Brussels. So yes, there will still be differences uh, between the way uh, not just our two countries, but the, the all European countries organize themselves. And precisely the question is, can we nonetheless find ways to organize ourselves to make our union uh, uh, better and more sustainable and more effective in responding to our people's needs? Well, the two of you have certainly set a very good example for, for French and German governments. Let's hope that they work together as well as, uh, as, well as you do. Um, we have one thing left to do in this podcast, which is uh, our bookshelf segment. Andrew, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? At the moment, I am reading a book by Andre Wilkins, one of our council members, um, which has just been published a few weeks ago. Called the discrete charm, the bureaucracy, the discrete uh, charm of bureaucracy. A book about Europe, a positive book about Europe uh, that Andre Wilkins uh, started writing quite a while ago. When um, clearly there was not, uh, there were not many people who wanted to talk about Europe in sort of positive terms, and he set off to do that. Um, this book has hit um, the bookshelves only recently, and it strikes me that uh, currently the pulse. Um, of the European conversation, at least in my country, is turning out more positive again. So I'm reading through this book, it's a very personal account in many ways of the trajectory of a man who has become a European by being and living in Europe um, uh, very much and his opportunities and you learn a lot on, along the way. Uh, it's a different kind of read, I mean it's not a very technical technical account, I'm halfway through it, I enjoy the read and uh, I'll report back about what I make of it all. Fantastic, what about you uh, Emmanuel? I'm, I'm reading a book... Emmanuel, uh, sorry, I'm confusing yeah, you with your president. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if you should be very pleased with that. I'm reading a book by Antoine Garapon and Michel Rosenfeld on uh, terrorism and democracy. The name is Democracy Sous Stress, Democracies Under Stress, and that's how democracies are... Uh, um, terrorism are imposing uh, uh, on, on democracies the kind of reactions that they are not the best uh, equipped to do and so how you react under stress, how you react uh, with kind of uh, um, hurried uh, decision and hurried debates uh, without taking the time to uh, look at what you have done uh, with your uh, previous reform and how that does not just make bad public policy but how that actually changes and transforms the way the democratic debate uh, is uh, uh, um, organized and structured and it's it's a very good book and it, it I'm now entering the chapter where they say what they think should be done so um, I'm, I'm sorry I don't have the answer to uh, 
to that problem, but it's, it's really uh, a good book in French, obviously. And my recommendation is not a book, but it's a podcast. It was uh, a few weeks old now, but it was one of the most uh, interesting things that I've heard for a long time. It's a podcast with Emmanuel Macron called L'Imaginaire Historique d'Emmanuel Macron, and it's uh, on France Culture. There's a special program called La Fabrique de l'Histoire, and it is quite an incredible thing to hear a head of state talk for an hour in quite uh, engaged and abstract terms about how history is thought of, how it's made, um, and the ethical and other kind of uh, dilemmas surrounding how countries deal and manage with their national memories and their histories. And I can't imagine any other head of government or head of state in the developed world being able to take part in a podcast like that. It's very difficult to imagine. Even some of the most impressive ones like Bill Clinton or Tony Blair um, engaging in a, in a conversation like that. It's heavily, heartily recommended. We'll put links to all of those books and podcasts and a fascinating view from the capitals, um, which looks at how Emmanuel Macron's victory is seen in all the places where we have offices on our website, which is at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please rush to iTunes, give us a ranking or a review, because that is something which will drive traffic towards the website. Tell people about it through social media, write about us on our Facebook page or on yours on Twitter. And if you have any comments on the podcast, feel free to write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Manuel Lafont-Nui, Almut Muller, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Pauline Doeni. Mm-hmm.